Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the pleasure of speaking with Peggy Brookins, who was, is today, and will forever be a teacher. In her current role as President and CEO of the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards, it is her mission to impact all students across the country by assuring they are taught by accomplished, board-certified teachers. Recently, her students at the Engineering and Manufacturing Institute of Technology at Forest High School in Ocala, Florida, had the chance to articulate what helped Peggy stand out as an exceptional leader at the school she led. The straightforward answer was that she established a trusting, safe environment in which they could fail, and she set high expectations. It is those same high standards that Peggy brings to her work at the National Board and to her many leadership positions, including serving as an Obama appointee of the President's Advisory Commission on Educational Excellence for African Americans. Peggy also serves as a commissioner on the Council for the Accreditation of Educator Preparation, CAEP, the Advisory Board of Digital Promise. SREB, Teacher Prep Commission, and the P21 Executive Board. Welcome, Peggy Brookins. How are you? I am doing exceptionally well. We are so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I am absolutely ready. Awesome. Peggy, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? So I think my path started very early and I thought about it and it's not something that you think about often, but then when you look back as a child, the things that happened to you and I read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. Mm -hmm. And it talked about the Canadian hockey team. Mm -hmm. And it talked about the birthdays of those individuals. They were January babies in the sense that I'm a January baby. I could not go to school in August when everyone else went because I was too young. Mm -hmm. So the following year, I was actually older than all the kids around me. So I found them immature. Um, So you start to take on leadership qualities then, and teachers were giving you leadership positions because you were at a different level of maturity. A year, you know, in elementary school makes an incredible difference. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of it started then, and then it just continued because people had confidence. And when people have confidence in you, you think there's nothing that you can't accomplish. And so that kind of followed me through my life in the things that I wanted to do and not being afraid to fail or to make a mistake or to not be perfect. And I think most of it just started there. You know, I'm thinking about 
all the people that I know that are January babies. I have to ask my husband because he's a January baby. Yeah. <laughs> I never connected that. That's really interesting. So I'm sure most of our listeners who were January babies are really tuning in because that makes sense. So a lot of people were pouring into you even at that age. Yes. I was an athlete in middle school, in high school. I was a college athlete. I was the captain of my basketball team at Florida. And all of those qualities, I think, came with years of maturity and people having that kind of confidence in you. I was on the leadership council for the university at the time and the SAC for the meetings that would take place. I grew up, I'm old enough to be one of those initial Title IX folks Mm -hmm. and somebody who participated in sports before Title IX. So a lot was happening and to be a spokesperson for the university, as well as, you know, being that first team within your high school that benefited from Title IX. So from there, I taught mathematics in high school. And one of the things I always felt in a classroom, because I got bored and I was one of those kids who would just drive my teacher crazy because I would ask all these questions about why Mm -hmm. and how do you know? And I wanted to be a teacher that when kids walked into my classroom, they wanted to be there. So I wanted to make it a place where I wanted to be. So something that happened in Florida was that there was a request for proposals to start new schools. And I thought, I want to start an engineering school. I'm a science geek, a math geek, and I really think there are some things that I want to do differently and make school look different for kids. So some friends of mine, we went out to dinner, and on the back of a napkin, we started thinking about what would our perfect day look like? And when we put those things down on paper, we felt to ourselves, this is doable. Let's write a proposal. We did. It was accepted. And, you know, it's basically history now. Was, so that was your first proposal you ever put on paper? That is, that is correct, that I ever awesome. put on paper in that way. And that was 23 years ago. I am one of those rare birds who taught at the same school for 38 years. And when we started this engineering magnet school, it was a school within a school. And I said, we will not do this unless we can do this on this campus. This is where we want to make a difference. So we did that. You know, the state gave us all the money. We had a separate building. Amazing, amazing. And what those students have done in 30 plus careers in engineering all over this country is absolutely incredible. I actually spoke to them this morning, believe it or not. I was just going to ask you, so you're still connecting (laughs) with them. Yes, I speak to them all the time. I go to their international robotics competitions. If my schedule permits, I teach a class when I'm at home. So it is fun. Uh, We have a Facebook page that has all of our past students on it, and they still connect with each other. And, you know, I taught students of students, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so their children as well, because I was there so long. And all the things that you're able to do in a community that you have roots in and what you instill in children about giving back to the community. So Lockheed Martin was one of our business partners, and right down the street, there are 11 of our current graduates as engineers at that one plant. Wow. So they have the ability to come four miles down the road back to our engineering school in the afternoon and mentor 
or be part of any project that they're working on. And so they understand what it means to give back mm. and to be a part of your community and to keep in touch. So I definitely keep in touch with my school at least once a week. Wow, that's awesome. And what is it that you're doing now? So what I'm doing right now is uh, when you talk about incredible things, I am now the president and CEO of the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards. I'm a board certified teacher. I am humbled by this position. I am the first board certified teacher to hold this position. And to be here in this atmosphere with this staff and around the country with some of the most dedicated, accomplished teachers on the planet, I think, is just a godsend to me. Mm-hmm. And I can see you really are radiant. I mean, you have this big smile as you I tell me all. <laughs> that is so phenomenal. I love that. Now, Peggy, how would you describe your leadership style? I think my leadership style is being an active listener. And when I say that, I mean to listen fully with my whole self in the sense that I'm not trying to think about the answer to a question or how I feel about something they've just said or, you know, why did they say that? And I've missed the next three sentences that they've said. I want to just focus on them, not shaking my head up and down or left and right or even saying, you know, affirmation of any kind. I just focus on them. And I've had to learn that. I'm just going to ask you that because as you're talking, I'm shaking my head up and down. (laughs) So obviously I have a lot to learn. Feedback to someone that may not be the feedback you want to give them at the time. So it's a skill I work hard on. I still work hard on it every single day to let people know I care and that I am truly listening to what they're saying. That's incredibly important. And it's certainly a skill that I want to continue to grow in. And this platform certainly provides practice. But I love that because for students, it means so much. Yeah, for two things, it lets them hear themselves. And oftentimes, they're not asking you to solve their problem. They just need to get things off their chest. And in the context of that kind of letting go, they tend to answer their own questions and they think you've really helped them out, but you haven't done anything. You've actually just let them hear themselves as they speak and then reflect on what they've just said and answer actually their own question many of the time. Well, that does take a lot of practice to listen, but it also takes a lot of practice to reflect on the questions. Some people get and I know I've done this, you get frustrated. Oh, just give me an answer. (laughs) Would you stop asking so many questions? And so I think it's a shift in the way we learn and the way we listen and the way we teach. Yes, absolutely. So which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? I've written a couple down because there are so, so many. And I think I have two. And two of them are kind of connected to each other. And the first one is Maya Angelou. And she says, if one is lucky, a solitary fantasy can totally transform one million realities. And I think about my school when I think about that. That was a fantasy. But what it has done for a ripple effect of people 
has just been extraordinary, I think. And the other one is my dear late friend, Ron Thorpe, who was my predecessor in this position. And we talk about this quote in reference to our work here. When something truly matters, it dwarfs all who work on it. But somehow, it also compels us to keep moving forward, humbled by the purpose, but also emboldened by it. And we keep that in mind every day. He was a true visionary who built relationships, motivated people, and felt like in his presence that everyone mattered. And is that the kind of leader that inspires you? Absolutely. I feel so fortunate to have spent time with him. I feel very fortunate that he's the reason I am sitting in this chair, in this office that he occupied and that I feel humbled and privileged that he chose me Mm. to sit here. It makes me teary almost when I think about it, that he, in his illness, was thinking ahead about the organization and the long, incredible, in-depth conversations he and I had the eight months before he passed away, you know, about the profession and what passion he had about the profession. And we actually met, I sat on the board and we met because we were looking for a new CEO and I was on the search committee. (laughs) And in his interview, we hit it off just immediately. Mm -hmm. And when he was coming, his first day on the board was my last day on the board. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, you will be back. Mm, So he predicted this. (laughs) I think he did somehow. So Peggy, as I listen to our leaders, as I listen to our guests, I start to write down things that jump out at me about you. To me, it's part of me practicing listening, but also adding value to who you are as a person and what inspires my heart. So I have a whole list of things that I've recognized and I see in you. Do you mind if I read them off? Oh, not at all. Okay, great. So I see that you are very confident, which is very inspiring because we need that. You're a risk taker. You occur as someone who's very intentional about what they do. A great connector. You connect with people and then you're very loyal to keep that connection. That's certainly really apparent with the students that you have kept in contact with. It occurs as if you're insatiably curious, which feeds into your creativity. You occur to me as someone who values people, values those around you, whether they lead you or whether you lead them or you're collaborating. You're an innovator, a great visionary, loyal, joyful. I mean, the listeners can't see this, but I'm sure they can hear it in your voice. You're certainly radiant. And to me, that's joyful. A deep listener, humble, because what you're doing is extremely valuable. And still, you don't take pride in what you've done. You give credit to others. You value legacy. Yes. And you're very passionate. Absolutely. So that's amazing. And so I want to thank you so much for being here with us. Okay, so Peggy, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I think I've ever received was from my grandmother. And... She said two things to me that stuck with me my entire life. One was fear was false evidence appearing real. And in times of struggle and conflict, you are not the opinion of others. 
So I take those two things to not be afraid to take a risk, to not be afraid of what the opinions of others are of my actions, uh, whether I succeed or whether I fail. It's that I tried and I'm going to learn something if I succeed. I'm going to learn something if I fail and I want to fail forward, Mm -hmm. if anything, and to always know how to pick myself up when I sense even the tiniest bit of self-doubt, to look around and see what life has given me, and it's given me a lot, an awful lot. I've been extremely lucky, you know, whether it's my family, whether it's my work, whether it's the incredible people I work with here at the National Board, or whether it's the students over 38 years that I still have the pleasure of contacting and knowing what they're doing, getting messages from them and meeting and having lunch or doing whatever, but to keep that real connection and those relationships alive. Amazing advice. Fear is false evidence appearing real. I love that because sometimes we're so full of fear that it affects not only us, but those around us. And really taking that and facing that head on is really important. So I'm assuming that you have been a part of many teams um, that you've led, that you've collaborated with teams. What does it mean to you to have a good team and how do you build or sustain one? So I think to have a good team is to have people who are focused on a mission, focused on a vision, and focused on a purpose. And at the same time, to listen very intently to how they think we should carry those three things out. Our destination, our direction, and what we want to do. I think that creativity they bring to the room And I am always curious about their view and how they see it. I used to do the same thing with my students because it's one thing to be an engineer. It's another thing to communicate your ideas in a way that people understand it. They get excited about it. And what I had my students read was the six thinking hats by Edward de Bono. Because everything we did was team oriented. It was done in teams because they're never going to work in isolation in their life. And they got to learn how to wear each color of this hat, whether they were gonna be creative, whether they were gonna think about the information and data, whether they were gonna think about how do they brainstorm ideas. I mean, the whole gamut of how do I get to do this? And the thing I think when I would watch them because they would be working in their teams, And we, as the facilitators, would be walking around watching the dynamics of what would be happening in these teams. And I watched them wear the red hat, which Mm -hmm. is feelings. Mm -hmm. And when they sensed that others were having a difficult time, they would put on the red hats. And to say, let's take like two minutes and let's get in touch with what we're really feeling that's holding us back. Mm. And once they did that, they would go back to the right color of hat every time to focus and to be productive. Mm. 
And it was nice that they realized that they needed to use the red hat to move forward. They always just amazed me. I loved it. That's awesome. So the six thinking hats. Yes, by Edward de Bono. Okay. All right. Great. So Peggy, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? Two challenges. One was my mother. Uh, I lost my father very early. And then, you know, my mother was young and was going to have kidney failure. And I happened to be the perfect match. And I got to give my mother a kidney. And I remember lying on the operating table and the surgeon looking at me and he said, ma'am, this is your last chance because you could bleed to death on this table. Do you really want to do this? And I said, of course, let's get started. What are we waiting for? How old were you? Uh, I was 49. Now, how did that shape your life? It shaped my life because it was a seven-hour surgery for me. So I got some really good sleep. But coming out of that, I felt such a sense of calm. I don't know why. To this day, I don't know why. I felt like if my life ended tomorrow, I'm good. I have done a lot of things, and to see my mother, probably hours, who was on the next table in the next surgery room to me because they take the kidney out and they put it immediately into the recipient, and to see her go from this gaunt, sunken cheek person within a week back to herself almost, that this kidney is functioning and functioning well, even to this day, knock on wood, I felt like I could give no greater gift. Mm. And I think the most recent challenge was the loss of Ron Thorpe. Mm. In the prime of the work of the national board and what we wanted to do, the plans we made about the current situation we were in around the redesign of board certification, where we wanted to take the national board after that, looking at equity and access, looking at diversity and what it would mean to have an accomplished teacher in every classroom in this country. And to lose him so quickly, I felt it was just unfair. And then to follow in those footsteps I have a picture of him on my desk, and I remember very clearly I was at his home, and we were sitting in his office. He was a great Sherlock Holmes fan, Mm -hmm. and he called his office Baker Street, and we were sitting in Baker Street. It was freezing cold, and we both had blankets on, and this is when he couldn't travel, so I would go to him, and we talked about the profession and how we saw it, and he would you know, go about residency and talk about the continuum and talk about standards and how we would connect it, but to talk about how teaching and education needed to become a profession. It was his passion. And then we would say, here are some possibilities. These are the things historically that have happened that we haven't connected the dots on. And we have the ability with the right relationships to connect those dots. 
And I feel like me and I know this staff wants to make sure this happens. So that is our great challenge. And I think we will make him proud. And it's a process, right? It is a process. It was a grueling process. And I think anyone who tells you what they've done and what they've learned and who they've become through the process. And I think it was critical for me because I was doing it at the same time as we created this engineering magnet school. And I thought to myself, what can I do to make myself better than I was the day before? And someone told me about this national board process and how transformative. It wasn't that I wasn't successful prior to that, You know, the kids were doing well. They were getting into great schools, uh, especially great engineering schools. But, you know, I always felt like there was more I could be doing to bring more into the classroom, more joy into the classroom, more excitement, more technology, more experiences. I want them to just leave school with, wow, there can't be anything else better than this. And once I went through the process, The thing that was so exciting for me is that my students saw the difference, but even more than that, other teachers saw the difference in my students. And sometimes you don't see it immediately, but one thing that did make me see it was one day after school, it was robotic season, and we have these team leaders, and we were doing a coding exercise for the robot. And I watched one of these young ladies go start the meeting. She had an agenda. She knew exactly what they were going to do as far as what aspect of the robot they were going to code that day. And she knew how to present it so that everyone would understand it. And as I watched her, I had such pride. And I said to her, where did you get this? She goes, I watched you. I'm like, oh, my God, you you never think about that, you know, you're this model of how you do things. It's just, you know, the national board way of doing things and you don't think about it. And then my staff decided, can we do this? It's a voluntary program. It's not what you force on people. And I said, sure, and I will pay for it. Mm -hmm. And I did. And they were telling me at my retirement before I left, that was the best thing you have ever done for us, to have us and allow us to go through national board, to pay for that process as our professional development. So I'm like, wow, Wow. this is amazing. It is amazing. And Peggy, if some of our listeners wanted more information, where could they go for that? They could go to our mbpts.org. Uh, We have a brand new website. Um, They could learn about the five core propositions, the architecture of accomplished teaching, how to become board certified, the current work that we're doing all over the country about our networks, you know, some policy, everything that the National Board does. Okay, great. Thank you so much for sharing those stories. So you've told us about some of your greatest successes. If you want to tell us more, that'd be great. I just think Here at the National Board, the redesign process of going through board certification to make it 
accessible to everyone. The flexibility. When I went through National Board early in the process, you know, it was a one-year process. And everything that you had to do and log, you had to do it in one year. And Ron Thorpe had this vision, and he talked to teachers in the field. He listened. He truly listened to teachers in the field to say, what would make this easier for you to say, I want to enter this process. And it was flexibility, time. And so the revision took place. He started the revision. We finished it this year in the sense that now you have three to five years. In the first three years, you must submit all four components. And then you have two additional years to submit any redo where you haven't accomplished the level that you should have in order to say you're an accomplished teacher. And teachers are loving this because it fits their lifestyle. It fits what they want to do is to take a deep dive into their practice and reflect and analyze and collaborate in ways that are purposeful and in ways that they learn not only about themselves, but they learn about the art of teaching, which is something I think in pre-service is somewhat lacking. And then learning about building those relationships, I think, as mentors with early career teachers as well. Now, the people you work with have gone through the process, National um, Board Certification? So on staff, yes, we have some board certified teachers on staff. Not everyone on our staff has gone through board certification. So, you know, we have people in finance, we have people in policy, we have people in outreach, people who work with our networks, people who do development, people who work on standards, people who work on assessment. So it's a large group of people, but there is a cadre of board certified teachers within the office that we can sit down. If there's anything about teaching and policy and standards that we can all have a conversation. I think that is the most incredible thing that has happened at the National Board because before Ron Thorpe came, there was only, I think, one board certified teacher on board. And now, you know, there are a dozen. It's very important work. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Now, Peggy, what would you tell a new teacher who's discouraged about their working climate or culture? Well, I think all of us have been in situations where we can't change the people who are already there, but we can change how we think about them. We can change how we view their struggle. We can also change how they might think by the ways we react. And I think sometimes to listen intently is to not have an immediate reaction, but to walk in another person's shoes. And for them to say, can you help me without shame? And humiliation with children is a thing that you always want to avoid. And I think you really want to avoid it with adults. But to have someone feel that they can be in a room, make their practice public and ask for help on their weakness is something that changes culture and climate. And to be that kind of change you want to see. I think sometimes people keep looking outside of themselves for leaders. And I can't remember the song. I think it's John Legend. 
And he says, I was looking for the leader and the leader was me. And I think a lot of people don't quite realize that because everyone brings something to the table. Everyone does. And it's just a matter of focusing on that, building on that and having, like my grandfather used to say, a level of confidence that borders on arrogance. Just do it and really go all in. It's so interesting because I've met Aaron Gilrain and Jennifer Wolf, who have really introduced me to this process. I did hear about it, but not to that level. And it seems like really deep, powerful, very, very important work helping people who are discouraged to go through that growth process. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that came to mind. There have been times when I've been in front of educators. In fact, it happens more often than not. I asked the question, how many of you are leaders? And a lot of them don't raise their hands. They don't think of themselves as leaders. What do you think about that? I think that has been ingrained in an atavistic system over time, in the sense that it's always been a top-down. Usually men have led as the principal. Women, you know, 85, 90% in some schools are the worker bees and do the work. And they've never been given the opportunity to lead. And I think one of the things about having MBCT at the end of your name is that people automatically see that as leadership in the sense of you understand how to reflect, you understand how to be clear, concise, and consistent in your thinking and in your work. So when you have to convey that or communicate that to someone else, people see you as a leader. So you see a lot of board certified teachers when you hear them speak in different places or you go into their classrooms to listen to what they're doing. When you see them at conferences and those who are presenting, many times they're board certified teachers. So I think a lot of teachers don't see what they do with children on a daily basis is just leadership itself and think that they need some formal sense of leadership when they are the leader they're looking for. Probably the most important leaders in the building. Oh, yes. Now, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you and what are you learning now? So I think to be a lifelong learner is you learn things and you have a new understanding. But for me, adding to that is a new behavior. And then I've truly, truly learned if I change my behavior. And what I'm learning right now is systems thinking. And I connect everything to science. And when I think about this pebble in a pond, and I think about if I'm going to make a decision, how does that affect everyone around me? How does it affect the work? Of what end is this? Is it necessary now? Can I put it over to the side? Or is it a focus that we should have currently? And so systems thinking allows you to get to the root of problems and not put band-aids on things and not just saying, okay, today I'm going to put out this fire. That's not what we do. That's not predictive. You're just being reactive in that way. So I think to learn that is something I work on every single day, is to think about what is the result and what is the real root cause. 
So a lot of what you're saying, I'm really connecting with my leadership training. And so I really appreciate that. Now, Peggy, if there was something you can change in education in the U.S., what would that be? Well, other than having Linda Darling-Hammond be the Secretary of Education, I think I would absolutely have an accomplished teacher in front of every child in this country to know that our education system that prepares teachers would deliver to every school that accomplished teacher and that those support systems are in place throughout your career. Everyone needs that throughout their entire career so that there will be clearly articulated steps along the way of this journey that you take in education that focus on student achievement, the whole child, what we bring every day to a campus. If people would just hop out of bed and say, I'm here and I'm here to make a difference. And I'm not alone. And I'm not alone. (laughs) Great. Thank you so much for that. Now, Peggy, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? Oh, so what I'm reading right now is a book called In Everyone Culture, being deliberately developmental in an organization. It's by Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy. And it talks about how you take your organization, you look at individuals within your organization, and you develop them to their fullest and what that can do for an organization when you do. And being very deliberate about, you know, my mom used to say things about, well, I can't do that. No, honey, it's not that you can't do it. You don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And just calling out things like that, or to say, I can help you learn how to do this thing. Or is there a class you want to take to learn how to do that? Is there some professional development? Is there a coach we can get to help you with this development? And then what is it that you want to do to listen to each member of your staff to say, how do you see yourself? What is your greatest strength? What do you bring? And if I said you could do anything you wanted to do here, what would it be for this organization? And just listen to what they say. The questions that you ask about what are your strengths or what are your challenges, those aren't easy questions. And sometimes I find when I ask those questions, I get this blank look or these long blinks, <laughs> you know, like, like what? Educators and leaders have a hard time answering that question. I don't have a hard time answering. Right. I tell myself all the time, uh, we have some people who are incredible writers. I'm a numbers person. I am not an incredible writer and I can have a creative idea. They can pen it in ways I could never think of pinning it. Given time, I could, but I don't have that kind of time. If I had something, somebody says, oh, yes, this is due in six months. Yes, I can do an incredible job on it then. But there are people on this staff who can do it in an hour. And I get that the national board certification process also helps you to be very self-aware so that you can answer those questions. There was a book that I read, you know, it's another book that I think everyone should read, and it's not around leadership, 
but it's called Diversity Explosion by William Fry from the Brookings Institute, who kind of forecast what the population will look like and what the needs will be in the sheer numbers of people who will be under the age of 30 mm-hmm. and when and migration versus immigration and all these myths that people have about immigrants and where they're coming from and what, you know, this country will be beautiful in the next, right. you know, 20 years. As you're speaking, I'm thinking about how important it is for teachers to think this way because we're not just teaching the kids in front of us, we're teaching the future. <laughs> Incredibly important work. So thank you so much for that. All right. So you have a lot of responsibilities. What do yes. you do? <laughs> yes. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities you have? So I'm an early riser. And I usually get to the office about seven. And that is my disciplined time to read, to reflect, to get things ready for the day, to answer emails, not in a hurried way, but to think through, you know, what it is I want to say. And the other piece of that is that being a board certified teacher and the first board certified teacher to lead this organization, people call you directly or they send you emails directly because they know you understand what they're about to say. So being very mindful of that is critical for me in that I answer their email, their phone call, and I will pick up the phone and call them directly. Mm -hmm. So I think just thinking about what I'm reading to make myself better than I was the day before. I get my hands dirty as a leader. I am that kind of learner that I like to be involved. I am auditory and visual in the sense that I can hear it, I can see it, I can imagine it, and that's all I need. I don't need anything else. And I'd like to see how the work evolves. And that gives me just great pleasure in seeing how the minds work as they put this together. And I just feel privileged to be in the room and to add any little bit to the conversation. Awesome. Now, many leaders put in long hours. What advice would you give about maintaining balance? I am trying not to laugh hard here because I am terrible. I am absolutely terrible at it. And one of the things I have done lately, and I've promised my staff to do, is to take an hour out for myself. For lunch? During (laughs) during the day. (laughs) Maybe to eat? Yeah. But um, I don't have a problem eating. (laughs) Something I learned from Arne Duncan when he was secretary was that on his calendar, he had an undisturbed hour. And nobody was to move it, nobody was to touch it, and it was his. And he went down to the gym, and that was his workout. And so I started to do that. You know, I'm an early riser, 4.35 a.m., and I take that hour for myself to take a walk, to get on the treadmill, to do a workout, 
to just sometimes sit quietly, but it's an hour I own. And I think you need to do that. And I'll walk and I'll see people walking with their headphones in. I don't walk with headphones. I listen to my inner self and listen to what has happened in the prior day or what's coming up in the next day that I need to sort out or how would I handle this? I reflect on, you know, did I handle everything right during the day? What are my upcoming events? Who am I speaking to? What's the most important thing to them that I could say a few words about that would be helpful? Or what is the most important aspect of our work that I could talk about to build a relationship with them? So that's my hour that I give myself. Even on the treadmill, I don't have headphones on. That's kind of what I'm doing. And I kind of go to my little la-la land of thinking about Mm. thinking, that metacognition piece. And, and, you know, Peggy, this is really important for me to hear, too, because I want to meditate and be in that place where you're listening. And sometimes I'm just like, I ask the questions, but then I continue to ask questions without sitting. So to help me do this process. So you're intentional about taking that hour and then you start to ask yourself these questions one at a time and you take time to listen. Is that correct? That is correct. So whether through prayer or through meditation, as you exercise, it helps us to clear our minds and helps us to be more confident about how to move ahead. Now, Peggy, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? I always think to myself, block out the noise, focus. And if you don't let others determine your path or instill fear, doubt, you can achieve what your goals are. And I think so often people worry about how they appear or what will others think that they don't focus. They let the outside noise get into their head and they develop doubt. They develop fear about taking risk. And that goes back to my grandmother's Fear is false evidence appearing real and that you can decipher for yourself. You don't need the outside noise of others. Okay, great. Thank you so much for that. Now, Peggy, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't addressed? We're at a critical point in this country for a lot of things. And I think education has a power to ease tension. It has the power to change minds, and it also has the power to unite. There are 2.6 billion children in this world under the age of 18. That is 40% of the population of this earth. And I think we as teachers really matter if we are in charge of educating 40% of this world. So I just think if we can focus on the good and the conversations to unite, I think we get somewhere. Absolutely great advice. And Peggy, I want to thank you so much for adding value, not just to me, but to our listeners. Lily, thank you so much for having me and asking me to be a part of this series. I think there are some incredible people that you've interviewed 
and I know there'll be many more and I'll be listening. Yay! It's been such a pleasure to meet you, to talk to you and to learn from you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.